Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And due to popular demand, I have, again, a fascinating conversation ahead for you with South Africa's premier political analyst, Koko Aubrey Machikli. Togoza uh, Koko, thank you so much for joining us once again. Togoza Kesh. Togoza. Well, all I can say before we start is I've just given up my inbox is just please interview Aubrey Machikri. That's basically the only thing I seem valuable for. So all I can say, <laughs> all I can say is I've delivered. Well, it is a, it, it, it is a blessing that your inbox is full of uh, demands for us to have another uh, conversation. I hope that as it uh, has happened before, uh, what uh, is going to come out of my mouth will not come only from my brain. I hope as I asked, and as I always ask before such a conversation, that if God has anything to say, I hope he will say it through the mouths of our ancestors. And if they have anything to say, they will say it through my mouth. And that which comes from my brain, they will guide accordingly. Well, on that note, um, it's, it's a, a difficult time in the world and we've just lost um, who I know as Uncle George Bezos. Um, a difficult loss for our country and at a time when we've lost many um, in, in that generation who, who shaped our, our country so profoundly. Um, it is a difficult period uh, with respect to the fact that we seem to be seeing also the passing of an age. Um, I, I had a conversation last night with a friend who was saying to me that people like George Bezos and, and those of his generation seem to have a different quality, a, a humanity that is not common amongst those of us who were born long after their birth, uh, my generation and the generations after. Um, it is a a, a, a level of humanity and humility and selflessness that transcends politics, mm. culture, race, and, and anything that uh, divides us as the current uh, generation. And, and so when I heard that uh, Uncle George had passed on, I, I was filled with uh, a sense of sadness, which coincided with another feeling, a, a feeling of gratitude, that I was fortunate to be one of those to sit at his feet 
and benefit from his wisdom and benefit from his knowledge of our history. Uh, because there was a time when Mary Metcalf, George Bezos and I spent lunch together almost every day. And, and I got to learn quite a lot from him. Uh, there are things Uncle George told me about how our political and constitutional order came into being. I'm referring here, of course, to our post-apartheid um, reality, mm. which he will take with him to the grave. Um, and these are things I myself will take to the grave because I do not have his uh, permission to talk about them. But they gave me a very deep insight about some of the weaknesses and the strengths, of course, of our constitutional and democratic order. Uh, an insight I would not have gleaned had it not been for the good fortune of uh, spending so much time with him having lunch mm. uh, with Mary Metcalf, as I said. Um, it, it strikes me that um, we, we seem to be in a paradox where there's such a dearth of political leadership on the one hand, but we have this abundance of ancestors and examples to draw from on the other. Um, and it just seems a strange situation in which to be as a country. Well, I think as a country, we are both blessed and cursed. Blessed to the extent that in this country walked giants like George Bezos, Nelson Mandela, Charlotte Makeke, Dorothy Nyembe, Walter Sisulu, O.R. Tambo, and others. During what must have been a golden period in our history. And therefore we are blessed in another way that even though they no longer walk amongst us, we have quite an example to follow. We, we have no reason, for instance, to be as corrupt as we are. We have no reason, for instance, to be as selfish as we are, opposed to their selflessness. We have no reason not to care about ameliorating the social, economic, and political conditions of our people when we have such good examples that were set by these giants, when it comes to sacrifice, when it comes to selflessness, when it comes to conducting ourselves always in a manner that improves on the weaknesses of the human condition. So we are blessed that they walked amongst us, but we are cursed that they left just as we were entering the period of what I hope in the end will be liberation with the advent of democracy in 1994. So many of these giants 
as the so-called new South Africa was being born in the lead up to the 1994 elections, started leaving us and they continue to leave us. Mm. And they leave us at a moment which makes me very sad because they must be very sad at the moment of their passing when they look at what we have become, firstly, as humanity. Secondly, they look at what the country has become compared to what we thought it would become. When they look at what the ANC has become uh, compared to the, 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 the mythical ANC, um, an ANC that would always act in the interests of the downtrodden. They must be very sad when they look at what has become, not only of the ANC, but what has become of the liberation uh, project. And when they look at the fact that our freedom, our liberation um, is being deferred by those with whom we fought for the same liberation. But at the same time, the world is going through a chronic lack of leadership. You look at America, you look at Europe, you look at the continent, our own continent, you look at Brazil, you look at the whole world. The whole world is going through a chronic lack of uh, leadership. And, and I think the chronic lack of leadership we must see as a messenger. These poor leaders, these inept leaders, these uncaring leaders, we must see as messengers. They, they are here to show us how bad the human condition has become. And therefore, uh, through them, we should be able to see what it is that we must do to be better, to do better, to change the human condition for the better. Well, on that note, I want to take you up on, on something that you were saying about the ANC, um, a party which the analysis of which just seems to get more and more shallow by the moment. And we've had a number of conversations in this Ramaphosa era, which I think are creating a counter archive to the dominant narrative. Um, when we look at the ANC as it stands right now, I'm struck by something you said in one of our previous conversations, which is that this idea that either one faction will prevail or another will prevail is simplistic. And in fact, two graves might have to be dug for both factions of the party. Um, do you still hold that well, view? And, and how do you see uh, the dynamics in the ANC as it comes out of an NEC meeting where apparently, according to the dominant narrative, the president uh, is triumphant and uh, has full control over the party simply because he survived a meeting? Well, let's start with that meeting. Um, if uh, our planet was uh, hit by a meteor, and was completely destroyed. 
as that NEC meeting was coming to its conclusion. It would be, it would be at a point when President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, came out of the meeting slightly better than we had anticipated. There, there was speculation that there would be blood on the wall and some of the blood would be his and he would come out of the meeting with a bloodied nose, so to speak. I think he found a great ally in Jacob Zuma at this meeting. <laughs> I, I, I do believe that the letter by Jacob Zuma is the best thing that could have happened to Cyril Ramaphosa since he received a prepaid voucher of one billion rand <laughs> prior to the NASREC uh, conference. So the letter was the best thing for that could have happened mm. to him. Because in a way, uh, Jacob Zuma's letter takes away attention from the ineptitude of the president, from his weaknesses and from his failures. And to me, his own letter highlighted his own weaknesses and his failures. And therefore, any attempt um, to discuss those weaknesses and his ineptitude was thwarted by the letter from the former president, but was also thwarted by what still remains a highly fractionalized climate in the ANC, where the truth is not an objective reality, uh, but is a subjective reality the orientation towards which depends on the faction to which you belong. But you are right. Um, the sanguine manner in which his supporters and apologists came out celebrating this so-called victory, I think is an indication of the extent to which we still refuse to engage with the reality that, for instance, the nine wasted years of so-called Jacob Zuma's presidency were the nine wasted years of ANC misrule. And therefore, President Cyril Ramaphosa is complicit himself in that nine wasted years of ANC misrule. And because he is complicit, the idea that he is a messiah is a desperate attempt to do what happened the last time I checked in the Bible when something was created out of nothing or something was created out of mud. <laughs> and therefore, this victory, let's, let's say it was a victory. Mm. What the victory does not change um, is the fact that he comes out of it, that is President Cyril Ramaphosa, feeling emboldened 
but his political opponents come out of the same meeting feeling emboldened that to the extent that they may have miscalculated in their preparations for this meeting and to the extent that their interests may be may have been damaged to some extent by the letter from Jacob Zuma. They must prepare better for the next stages mm. of this continuum of tensions uh, and battles between different factions in the ANC. But what I would like to add to what I've said previously is this. There's an extent to which the outcome of these factional battles really does not matter. Uh, because qualitatively, what will replace the current order will in, pro in all probability not be better. And therefore it does not matter which ANC faction wins because it will be the same ANC faction which no longer exists to foreground the interests of those who are victims of apartheid coloniality and colonialism. So it doesn't matter who, who, who wins uh, mm -hmm. in this factional battle because th that victory will not change the ANC. Uh, the ANC will remain a party, but in the current conjuncture, to use a term from the ANC, is more loyal to the interests of those who are hostile to the idea of a revolution that will truly liberate our people, is more loyal particularly to the interests of global and domestic um, capital. Um, and therefore, the factional battles um, will not replace that reality. They may in some ways reinforce it, actually. No, I, I think that's, that's, that's quite right. And so just, just a few things that, that, that come to mind as I, as I hear your analysis. Firstly, I was watching um, the testimony of Zola Tsotsi at the State Capture Commission. And um, he spoke about this event where it was just before the ANC's January 8th conference in 2014, just before the election, and they had a gala dinner fundraising for the party, at which state-owned enterprises were buying tables, which let's just leave that on one side. And at the top table, literally and metaphorically, were the ANC top six, presumably including then Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, unless he was sick that night. Um, two Gupta brothers, Tsotsi didn't mention which ones, and uh, Tsotsi himself. So that was, there was a table of 10, the ANC top six, uh, nine, two Gupta brothers and, and Tsotsi. And I just thought that table represents so much of, of what you have spoken about because there were different, that table split into different factions later. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately the interests represented and the problems represented by that table. I, I just wondered to myself, like, 
what did President Ramaphosa say to the Guptas at the table, if anything, um, <laughs> <laughs> while, while they were dining together? Um, and as much change as there's been, the more things have stayed the same in many ways. Well, you see, you, you, you refer to the State Capture um, Commission of Inquiry. One of the things, the dominant narrative of state capture in this country obscures is the fact that to the extent that power exists in counterpoint to powerlessness, that, that both the power and the powerlessness are not perfect in their nature and character. And therefore the power is not complete and the powerlessness itself is not complete. Which means to the extent that we can argue that even the leaders and members of the ANC are victims of coloniality. It can be argued therefore that the post-apartheid state uh, over which they are supposed to preside is a state that is a contested terrain. But even before the ANC takes power in 1994, what you have in terms of the dominant interest in the global and the domestic economy is the imperative to reproduce dominant logics. And one of those dominant logics would be the dominant logic in terms of how society and economies should be organized. And one of the instruments you use to reproduce those dominant logics is the state. So one of the reasons you must capture the state is to reproduce dominant logics as part of the process of reproducing, reproducing those dominant logics at a cultural, at a racial, at a political, at a legal, um, uh, intellectual and other levels in society as a whole. Which means by the time 1994 happens, the, the post-apartheid state, like other states in the world, have been captured by coloniality. And it is therefore not surprising that the post-apartheid state this day, I mean to this day or today, exhibits features of neo-coloniality. And our economy um, exhibits features of the neo-colonial as a result. So which means when these factions in the ANC uh, fight to capture the state. They are fighting to capture a state that has already been captured by these forces of coloniality and neocoloniality. And therefore what they are fighting for are remnants of state power. Not state power itself, but remnants of state power. And this is one of the things, the dominant narrative of uh, state capture in this country dishonestly or otherwise obscures.
Mm, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a wonderful way of putting it. And I do want to move on to other, other political dynamics because we, we won't just focus on the ANC because I think one of the problems with how we analyze essay politics, especially when an ANC meeting happens is we think politics is uh, equivalent to ANC politics, but the ANC yes. nevertheless matters. And I think that just the last thing I would want to, to get your, your views on is we've now kind of reached the halfway point, funnily enough, of um, because it's still presented um, the ANC, the Ramaphosa ANC presidency as if it's in its infancy. It's actually more than halfway through um, as we move towards December 2022, when the ANC will have its, its next um, elective conference. And so what are the kinds of things we need to be looking for as that process builds up? You know, um, next year will be the final year in many ways of, of a substantive agenda before the election machinery starts kicking in. And how should we be analyzing the ANC as we lead up to yet another ANC um, elective battle potentially in not, not a lot longer than two years? Well, were it not for COVID-19, um, at the end of June, the ANC would have had a National General Council. It's a midterm conference. At, at, at which conference the opponents of uh, the president uh, would have tried to undermine him. Some of them even argued they'll try to remove him. Uh, there is no provision, by the way, in the ANC constitution for that to happen at a National General Council. But the National General Council would have given us two signals. Uh, firstly, the direction, um, the, the battle to undermine and unseat the president would take. And it would also signal the direction in which uh, policy would go uh, as, as far as uh, changing it is concerned. Now, you are right that South African politics is not reducible only to that which occurs inside the ANC. And that is why to understand what is going to happen, we must not talk only in terms of what will happen in or to the ANC. We must talk more about what will happen to the country and the kind of forces that will drive change in South Africa or lack of change in South Africa. In doing so, you, you, you can't talk about the ANC without talking about the DA. Now, when you look at what happened at uh, the DA's policy conference, mm. it, it, it's very clear that the return of Helen Zille represents a very important moment in our politics. Mm. You must remember that in 2013, the DA held a policy meeting. At the end of that policy meeting, the DA announced that it had discovered race 
and argued that race was a predictor of advantage and disadvantage in South Africa. At the end of the policy conference of last week, the DA abandoned that position. Why? Because with the return of Helen Zealand comes the return of something else, an attempt to go back to the roots of the DA. The roots of the DA being a time when it existed through the Liberal Party, the Progressive Federal Party, its uh, precursors, to promote the interests of the English-speaking middle class. And as, as, as things changed in the country, with the DA moment, especially under Helen Zilla, something else happens. That in order to defend whiteness, Helen Zilla thought it wise to blacken the DA to increase its membership and its support amongst black voters. And that put the DA in an interesting position because the blackening of the party um, became a way of protecting or, or defending whiteness or white interests, particularly white economic interests that are seen as a threat by conservative elements in the party, who felt that the blackening of the party was diverting the party away from its traditional liberal values. Uh, and, and by the way, just in passing, elsewhere in the world, the DA would not be called a liberal party to be a conservative party. But be that as it may. So you, 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 you have this clash now that there's a realization within the party that for it to grow and be in a position to protect and maintain white interests, particularly economic interests, it, was, it must win an electoral majority. And the only way of doing that is to attract an increasing number of black people who would become the Trojan horse of its economic and other interests. But what do we see now? We see a situation where the return of Helen Zilla suggests that the DA has stumbled on a different realization that it does not have to win an electoral majority when there is a party that will continue to maintain white interests in general and white economic interests in particular, a party that deploys it's black electoral majority to maintain white interests. And that party is the ANC. And therefore, the DA can do two things at the same time, if not more. It can try to maintain its core constituency and maintain whiteness, while at the same time, through the ANC, it can govern and maintain those interests of whiteness. So that's another way we need to look at the ANC. We must look at the ANC, as I continue to say, 
as a party with the DA that exists to maintain the interests of the establishment, particularly the economic establishment. So the question we need to ask about the ANC, can it become something different from this reality? For me, that's the key question. And there is no sign when you look at the quality of leadership that is being made available, when you look at its tactical and strategic ineptitude, when you look at its, uh, you look at the poor content of revolutionary, uh, revolutionary morality, when you look at all those and other factors in the foreseeable future, there seems to be no chance that the ANC will deviate from this course where with the DA, it exists to maintain white interests, particularly white economic interests, by continuing to win um, an electoral majority through black voters, which puts black voters and black people in general in a difficult position. It's clear that they cannot trust the DA. It's clear that they cannot trust the ANC. And that is why 18 million South Africans did not bother to vote last year. And that number will increase if I'm correct, because an increasing number of black South Africans in particular will buy into the idea that every time they vote, they vote for their disenfranchisement, which means what they need is an alternative to both the DA and the ANC. And the question is whether the EFF is that alternative. In my view, the alternative is not the, EF, the EFF. Uh, to the extent that we can have that conversation, it seems that many black people like what the EFF is saying, but are not convinced that it is ready to govern. But the larger point we must make is that it doesn't, does not matter what party replaces the ANC. What needs to emerge as an alternative is an alternative political and economic system. Because the current political and economic system is rigged to serve the interests, not of those who are victims of coloniality in this country. I think there's a very important um, conversation that is not being sufficiently had about this great reversion in the DA to the politics of the 1990s and early 2000s. And in some ways, it's almost as if COVID-19 and, and all that's happening in the ANC and the EFF and, uh, is somehow masking that our, our biggest opposition party has undergone this incredible transformation, uh, for lack of a better word, um, and reversion to its earlier style of, of thinking. And when I look at the policy documents, both the discussion documents, the DA loves to also say, oh, you haven't read the document. No, no. I read the discussion document, the policy document. But don't forget, Caesar, <laughs> black people don't read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, this PhD uh, tends to help with that. Um, and so they, 
they seem stuck in a very incoherent position where what they've done now is they've copied and pasted the sustainable development goals as their policies, which are completely, of course, necessarily divorced from the South African context. So, so they've taken these global development goals and suggested that somehow that will be enough to ameliorate the inequalities in South Africa and use that as a pretext for removing all reference to race as a means of empowerment while still uh, declaring themselves in favor of diversity. However, such diversity may not be quantified and must remain in the air for anyone and any institution to determine for themselves. So it seems to me what's happened in the DA is that they want now to have their cake and eat it. They want to appeal to a more conservative white electorate while pretending that they really care about the empowerment of black people, yet not mentioning their empowerment explicitly. And it seems to me that that is the exact worst possible alternative to the crisis we have right now um, in, in the ANC. Well, <laughs> to put it succinctly, um, the DA thinks black people are fools. They think that black people will not see through them, will not see through this facade of a strategy, as you say, that seeks to maintain its core constituency. A core constituency that is not committed to fundamental change in South Africa, a core constituency that is not committed to uprooting the neo-colonial features of our post-apartheid reality. The DA wants to do that and then sell this mirage of non-racialism, a non-racialism that will bring about inequality, and that will bring about an order um, that consigns inequality, poverty, unemployment, and other indicators of black underdevelopment to the dustbin of history. And, and they believe somehow that black people are going to be seduced by, by this lie. So in my view, the DA comes out of his policy conference more racist than it was before, to the extent that it comes out of this policy conference patronizing black people, undermining their intelligence, and, and thinking that the interests of its core constituency will be maintained by black voters who are too stupid to see through the lie that the DA is trying to sell to them. So I, I, I think the current strategy of the DA, as evidenced by the resolutions it passed at this policy conference, it's quite insulting um, to those who are black. But it betrays what I'm saying, 
that the DA is not interested in fundamental change. If fundamental change is about uprooting coloniality and the neo-colonial features of our post-apartheid reality. But if the DA is making a mistake in this approach, it's not going to be fatal in a very important respect. The interests it seeks to protect, particularly as I keep on saying white economic interests, will still be maintained through an ANC government. And therefore, its current tactical mistakes are not going to be fatal with respect to that set of interests. Because if the ANC for the next two or more elections continues to win the majority, the ANC will then continue to deploy its black electoral majority to maintain white interests. And let's move move to the EFF, which you also mentioned now, because as you as you rightly point out, if if what you've been saying um, up to this point is true, you would think that both the ANC and the DA were extremely vulnerable to inroads from uh, a party which presents an alternative to to their respective visions, and yet, although the EFF has probably more than any other new party in democracy um, established itself. It seems to me like there's a much greater opportunity than the 10% that the EFF has, has been able to garner in, in the last election. It doesn't strike me that the EFF will suddenly break through to 20% of the electorate, for example, um, anytime soon. So it would seem that even in this third alternative, although maybe the rhetoric is uh, better in terms of unapologetically dealing with coloniality and, and racism, there are still major, major concerns that South Africans have about, about the EFF, about its, its strategy and its ability to turn rhetoric into reality. And so in some ways it's succeeded better than other new parties, but if you really look at the opportunity that's available, it still seems not to be grasping that opportunity um, to, to the fullest extent. So what, what do you think about where the EFF is? And also in light of, maybe we can use these kind of, these clicks protests as, as a prism through which to understand both the weaknesses and the strengths of the EFF as it currently stands. Well, I, continue to believe that the greatest strength of the EFF is Julius Malema, a highly gifted politician, probably the most poli gifted politician in South Africa. And I'm not saying this approvingly, <laughs> um, because of what politics is. Um, he is quite a gifted politician. But I think Julius Malema is also the greatest weakness of the EFF. 
to the extent that there is a perception that without him, there can be no EFF. Um, as, as, as a result of, of which the, the South African voter who has seen other parties in the past that have been a one man or a one woman show underperforming in relation to its uh, potential or their potential. Uh, the South African voter seems to be taking the view that because beyond Malima, there may not be an EFF or at least an EFF as we know it, the EFF does not constitute a credible alternative to the ANC. But there's also an element of ageism, I think, on the part of the voter. Um, we seem to think that being young on its own uh, means that those who are young are inherently lacking in wisdom and prudence, and therefore cannot be trusted to govern. Um, so the, I, I think that element does exist. And then when you look at the optics of how some of the leaders of the EFF sometimes behave, the optics tend to reinforce that perception that youth translates to lack of wisdom and lack of prudence. But another way of looking at that is that to some extent, maybe we must accept that the South African voter or South Africans are conservative. And, and this takes us back to the ANC, by the way, that one of the things that is happening in the ANC is not just the factional battle, but a battle between those who pretend they, they are pursuing an agenda that is radical, an agenda for fundamental change, who recognize that South Africa is in need of the kind of revolutionary change we have not seen since 1994. And then you have another group that is conservative in nature, and at the moment is dominant in the ANC, that seeks to maintain the status quo, particularly in the economy. But back to the EFF. I personally think that the weaknesses we see in the DA and the ANC are enough for the EFF uh, to breach 15% in the next election. And if the EFF does not do that, it will be because of how it is perceived. And some of the perceptions, as I've said, are not fair. They are a product of the fact that to some extent we are conservative and to some extent we are ageist. But some of them are about the EFF needing to look at politics as optics and look at whether it does not need to adjust the optics uh, to make gains in uh, political terms. But another question for me is to the extent that it posits um, 
a, a radical philosophy, particularly when it comes to the uh, political economy of race in this country. Does that tally with the perception that you can take a person out of the ANC, but you cannot take the person out of the ANC? In other words, I mean, you cannot take the ANC out of the person. In, in, in other words, is the EFF, EFF not being damaged, for example, by the VBS uh, scandal, because of the perception that it is a version or it has become a version of all that is venal and nefarious and corrupt that we see in the ANC. And to the extent that the South African citizen objects to that with respect to the ANC, the South African citizen can therefore not trust the EFF. But as, as I have said, if the EFF um, is to posit a credible alternative to South African voters, it must take the lead in imposing a discourse that is dominated by the idea that there is not a single party in South Africa that can be a credible alternative to the ANC because what is required is an alternative to the ANC that will be part of forces that install a political and economic order that is antithetical to the current political and, and, and the economic order, uh, whose logic is counter-hegemonic to the dominant logic today in the economy and how society should be organized. In other words, to the extent that the capitalist system and liberal democracy are rigged in favor of a global and domestic establishment that does not exist to uproot inequality, that does not exist in our context to uproot coloniality and neocoloniality. To that extent, if the EFF cannot posit such an argument and their logic, it will remain just one of these alternatives to the ANC that may even win an election, but will actually not be able to effect fundamental change in our society. You know, and to round off, I do want to stick on this because I think it's, it's, it's so important, like you say, with this ANC and DA crisis, in my view, um, to to give a critique of the EFF that on the one hand avoids the tropes that are often trotted out in, in mainstream narratives, which I think are extremely unhelpful because instead of critiquing the EFF as the ANC or the DA are critiqued, the, the ambition seems to be rather to discredit the EFF um, and, and uh, relegate it to something outside the political landscape. Whereas in my view, all that does is just help the EFF because it riles their base, it creates a siege mentality, and 
what we have missing on the EFF is is a sustained critique that 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 any political party must be able to um, to learn from and think about and and respond to or fail to. And so for me, I identify three three major problems. I think the first one for me is is this question of gender. Um, and we saw in in response to in, there was this viral video on social media where an EFF supporter uh, pushed a woman journalist against her will, and instead of coming out strongly against uh, that obviously um, indefensible act, again I felt that EFF leaders were too quick to 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 you know close ranks and again adopt the siege mentality when in fact this question of gender has dogged the party for a long time and it hasn't convinced me um, and I can't imagine how it would convince particularly black women in our society are completely underrepresented in politics that the, the party has really grappled with that question. Then you've also got the governance question, as you say. How, how would we get from A to B? I see B, I agree with where A is but I'm missing how we get there, especially if the state is the only vehicle we're using. And our state is so incomprehensibly inept that to imagine it could do so in a short period of time just seems to me foolish. And then, yes, and then you've got this, this, this question of similarity with the ANC, but, but let's, let, let's just look at those two, for example. Unless the party can really grapple with those issues, then its ceiling will always be fairly, fairly entrenched. Well, let me start with, with the link between state capture and gender. And as I've already argued, by the time ANC factions start fighting for remnants of state power. The state has already been captured by the, the, the forces of coloniality. And, and remember here, we're talking about global colonialities as they manifest in different parts of the world, including South Africa. Now, Let's focus on the adjective. Um, in this case, state. But there are other forms of capture which, 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 which come with different adjectives. Corporate capture, for instance. But there's a form of capture that we seldom talk about that is not part of our discourse of uh, state capture, a form of capture that pre-exists state capture as we know it. Um, we, we saw it through slavery, that one of the imperatives for those who need to capture is to capture people. So not just nation states, but people. Patriarchy is a form of capture. There is no state anywhere in the world that is not patriarchal. All states in the world 
are patriarchal states. And if I am correct, in terms of gender, uh, we have a form of capture through patriarchy, through which women are captured. And so the existence of a patriarchal state, including our own, betrays the existence of the idea that women are a commodity and therefore a commodity to be captured. It's quite possible that the EFF, um, which is part of our society and therefore will reflect these patriarchal impulses, it's quite possible that in it, there are too many who are not women, who are not sufficiently sensitive to this reality I'm talking about. Patriarchy is a form of capture. But it is also quite possible that it's because of our political culture at the domestic and global level that one of the things that must not be foregrounded is gender in order to win elections. So it's quite possible that the personal sensibilities of males, of men in the EFF inform this response towards the assault of these female journalists that you are talking about. But they are part of a societal male patriarchal impulse that is blind to the kind of acts we are talking about. And therefore, to the extent that there is a need um, to involve men in anti-patriarchal uh, struggles, that's must, that must extend to political parties. So, we are not going to have a, a society that is not patriarchal. We are not going to have a state that is not patriarchal until our men, in terms of their own impulses, become anti-patriarchal. And until that happens, it will manifest in political parties amongst others, including um, the EFF. But there's a reason why the EFF is discredited. It is not because uh, those who discredit it. And remember, um, if you just do a cursory look at who is uh, discrediting the EFF, you will see that consciously or unconsciously, these are the voices that speak for the establishment. And, and, and because of that, the reason why the EFF has to be discredited is not because they fear that through the EFF, a revolutionary order will be installed. Their fear is that even if the EFF is not genuine in its commitment to install a, revolu a truly revolutionary order, through what it is saying, even if it is saying dishonestly, it may plant an idea which one day may result in a revolutionary movement 
that does displace the interests that are currently dominant in our society and in the world. So I think that's the nature of the fear um, that makes the EFF a subject of uh, lampooning, ridicule, uh, or that makes the EFF to be discredited by these voices. Well, Gogo, uh, without wishing to take any more of your time, you've already been very generous with, with it. I'd like to thank you for yet another session of analyzing politics and uh, for your insights and your ability to pass through the, the, the different aspects of the South African political landscape, unlike any other. So on behalf of the SMWX family, uh, we thank you for joining us on this channel once again. And thank you for inviting me. And thank you to your viewers for making uh, threats <laughs> to do you grievous bodily harm which uh, compels you <laughs> to invite me again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I suspect uh, I've, I've warded off those threats for another few months, but if you get another message for, from me, you know someone came to my door and, uh, and actually made the threat a reality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, through the powers the uh, ancestors uh, bestow upon us, I will try to protect you. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for that. Thanks so much, Coco. Togos. Togos. Thank you.